Welcome to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. Join us in person for worship each Sunday at 9.30 a.m. For more information about Covenant, including discipleship and mission opportunities, visit us at www.covenantpresjackson.org. The disciples are on the road again, following Jesus wherever he went. And for the first time, Mark reveals the destination. Jerusalem, the city of David. If a revolution were to take place, Jerusalem is where the spark would ignite. And now they're within 20 miles of the great city. Mark tells us that the disciples were amazed and they were afraid. They had plenty of time to talk on the road, to imagine what would happen, to to worry and fret about it. Would they immediately take up arms and, and challenge the Roman rulers? Would they have to pull together an army? Would a heavenly army appear to assist them? Well, certainly a Rousing speech would be called for. And when that epic moment happens, there the disciples would be standing next to Jesus, ready to take charge and lead an army. They were at the forefront of this radical movement set to change the world. All the pieces were there. They had found the long-awaited Messiah, the son of David. Soon they would no longer need to tolerate their puppet king, Herod, for they had a much more qualified king to coronate. They, they had a prophet like Moses. With Jesus, Israel could be freed from foreign rule once and for all. The kingdom of God was at hand. But their excitement was tempered by fear because on two prior occasions, Jesus told his disciples that he would be rejected by the religious leaders and ultimately put to death, which was easy to believe. After all, the religious leaders had been opposing Jesus for a while now, and there's a whole bunch of them in Jerusalem. With this on their mind, they talked and lingered on the road, solving nothing, since endless talk only increases anxiety. But Jesus was undeterred by the task before him. He walked ahead of them without fear. But he was aware that his disciples were troubled, and so he called the twelve to him. The men appointed to be his chief witnesses to carry on his mission, he told them one last time what to expect. This third prediction of his death and resurrection contains the most details of the three. In fact, it's an exact outline of what happens. They'll arrive in Jerusalem, and Jesus will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. This implies that someone will betray him. Someone will deliver him over to be judged and tried by the religious leaders. He'll be rejected by his own people and tried by his own people as a heretic. It's absurd. Jesus, the eternal begotten Son of the Father, will be convicted of blasphemy. It's a tragic irony, but 
one Jesus accepts, he's still going to Jerusalem. Not only will he be condemned by his own people, but the judgment will be carried out by the Gentiles, people who are outside the covenant community. Jesus will be treated like a scapegoat. Every year on the Day of Atonement, the sins of the entire community would be placed on a goat. And then that goat, known as the scapegoat, would be kicked out of the covenant community. It would be led out to the wilderness to be delivered to the nations, the Gentiles. That's what will happen to Jesus. The Gentiles will mock Jesus. They'll spit on him, flog him, and then take him outside of Jerusalem and kill him. Jesus is sharing in the experience of Israel. Just as the kingdom of Israel was handed over to the Assyrians many years earlier to execute God's judgment on them for their sin, And just as the kingdom of Judah was handed over to the Babylonians to execute God's judgment on them for their sin, Jesus was to undergo that same experience of Israel by being handed over to the Gentiles to be punished and killed. But this wouldn't be the end of his story. After three days, he would rise. And though his disciples are incapable of grasping the significance of these words in the moment, Jesus said this to encourage them and prepare them for what would happen. He knew that his disciples' expectations were off. They will be disappointed because the plan of God will look like a failure. They will feel as if they'd been deceived by Jesus but the appearance of failure will be short-lived. After three days, he will rise from the dead. With these words, the amount of fear experienced by the disciples over the days ahead will be inversely correlated with the amount of trust they have in them. That's how faith works. The more we trust the words of God and the goodness of God, the less we will fear. The less we trust God, the more anxiety we have. Unfortunately, we don't always do as we know we ought. We fail to trust God. And we gravitate toward our own self-interest, which is what the disciples did. James and John, two of the most prominent disciples, prepared for what would take place in Jerusalem by asking Jesus for positions of power and honor. The way they went about making their request betrays the fact that they knew, at least on some level, that what they desired was wrong. First, they came up to Jesus separate from the other disciples to make their request. They were being sneaky because they knew how the others would feel about what they wanted to ask. Secondly, they, they didn't make their request immediately known. They danced around it first trying to get Jesus to agree to their request before they actually said what it was. Essentially, they were asking Jesus for a blank check. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, 
before we judge them too harshly, don't we do that all the time in our own prayer life? How often do we bombard God with our requests, focusing on our own wants and needs? And how do we react when we don't get what we ask for? Are we more likely to thank God for his discretion or express our frustration because we think that we're somehow entitled to having our prayers answered, whatever we ask? I mean, shouldn't God reward our faithfulness by giving special attention to our prayers? James and John seem to think that way. Uh, Jesus wasn't fooled by them, but he humored them anyway and graciously asked, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. They're thinking about the glorious throne in Jerusalem, an earthly kingdom, not a heavenly one. And their language attempts to honor Jesus. They, they recognize that he's the one in the prominent position. They merely want to be on each side. Acknowledging this uses the language of worship and discipleship. But the actual request couldn't be further from worship or discipleship. Their request was selfish and divisive. Do they really think that they deserve such important positions? Jesus could have honored a number of people in that way who were more intelligent, better leaders, better fighters than James and John, not to mention others in their own company. What about Peter? But the disciples were not chosen for their superior qualities. They were recipients of God's grace. But they thought that they deserved their position and that they deserved more honor than they currently had. They were looking ahead, too far ahead. And Jesus was just speaking of his suffering, and they're more interested in talking about the glory to come. I don't suppose Jesus ever received much comfort from his own followers. Now, if two of the greatest disciples could waver so much in their devotion to God that they would seek their own glory and honor, how much extra attention should we give to our own tendency to do the same thing? We're not above pride by any means. Uh, if Jesus was offended by their selfish request, he didn't show it. He was gracious in his response and had concern for them because, well, they had no idea of what it was they were asking. What a comfort it is that God knows what you need when you don't even know what it is you're asking for. Our hearts desire the strangest things. Can you imagine how different your life would be if God had granted every one of your foolish prayer requests? You'd likely be married to someone else, working a different job, living somewhere else, too famous to live your own life. Who knows? But we've all prayed for things that we wanted for a time, but weren't part of God's plan for us. Thankfully, God is gracious and merciful to us, just as Jesus was to James and John. He lovingly explained to them that they didn't understand the implications of the request. Could they truly drink the cup that he is to drink 
and be baptized with the baptism that he is baptized with? They certainly think they can. They're willing to go to battle. And surprisingly, Jesus agrees with them to an extent. He said that they will indeed share in his cup and baptism, but it's not his place to assign other positions of authority. But that's already been determined by his Father in heaven. But what is Jesus talking about with the cup and baptism metaphors? Well, in the Old Testament, God's judgment and wrath is often described as a cup of wine that causes people or nations to get drunk and collapse. For example, Psalm 75 says, It is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. A baptism also has a connotation of judgment to it in the way that you know, Noah was delivered through the waters of judgment on an ark, and Moses led Israel through the waters of judgment in the Exodus. Both waters are metaphors for baptism, and on both occasions, the earth was cleansed by the waters of judgment. Now, Jesus is talking about the judgment and wrath of God that he will experience in death. But he acknowledges that James and John will have a share in it and that they too will experience suffering on the account of Christ. Indeed, James will be martyred and John will die in exile. But Jesus will receive the cup and baptism in the fullest sense. He is the one who will fulfill the will of God, a point that Jesus will make explicit in verse 45. But before we get to that, we're told that the other disciples caught wind of the request of James and John, and they were indignant, not because they were offended on behalf of Jesus, but because they wanted positions of honor and felt slighted because James and John beat them to the punch. The selfish request hindered the unity of the disciples. And so Jesus quickly addressed that problem by teaching them about servant leadership. He began with an appeal to their Jewish pride by referring to the way Gentiles use their authority as a weapon to harm those under authority. Of course, the disciples don't want to be like the wicked Gentiles. The better way that Jesus calls the disciples to, the better way that he calls us to, is diametrically opposed to the ways of the world. Greatness is not determined by wealth, status, or power. It's based on service. Whoever would be great among the disciples of Jesus must be a servant, even more lowly, a slave of all. It's an oxymoron and surely a step too far. There's no way he meant that literally, right? Earlier, Jesus talked about being a servant and receiving the lowly, such as children. But now he says to be a slave. A slave had no rights. They were simply property, serving a master. They were lower on the social rung than servants. To say that one must be a slave to be considered great 
must have provoked a few chuckles from his audience. But Jesus wasn't joking, and he lived it out, as verse 45 indicates. Verse 45 is a powerful statement worth memorizing. It ties the whole section together from his prediction of his death and resurrection to the greater purpose that it serves. He said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the ultimate example of a servant leader because he lay aside his own life for others. This verse reveals the purpose for which Jesus would die. His death was to be a ransom payment. A ransom was the price paid to free a slave. Jesus thought of his own death as paying a ransom. This is a theologically rich concept. On the surface, it reveals that his death is part of God's plan. He came to die, to give his life, laying aside his self-interest to serve others. And so his death, when it comes, isn't a failure of his messiahship. It's the fulfillment of God's plan. On a deeper level, it points to the fulfillment of the suffering servant passage in Isaiah chapter 53. Jesus identifies himself with the suffering servant who is pierced for our transgressions, wounded for our iniquity. God told Adam that the penalty for sin is death, a cup of judgment and wrath that must be drunk. Jesus is paying that penalty, that ransom for our sin by drinking the cup to its dregs on our behalf. He knows that a proper ransom to God can be offered by no one other than himself. Now, James and John thought that they could, and they were willing to die for the cause, but their death wouldn't cover the ransom because of their own sin and mortality. Whereas Jesus was sinless and eternal, being the begotten Son of God. His death on behalf of the many is a sacrifice of obedience to God's will, a full expression of His love, and a full satisfaction of God's justice. And since He paid the ransom in full, there's no further price to be paid by us. Reconciliation with God, for us, is free. Though the disciples were afraid, it was Jesus who actually had something worth fearing. And we will see his fear in the garden. That's because he experienced something in his death that we will not. His death was accompanied with the wrath in judgment of God, that we deserve for our sin. He was the scapegoat for our sin. He went into exile on the cross for our sin. Jesus drank the cup we deserve to drink so that when we die, there is no judgment and wrath left for us who are in Christ. He defeated death through his resurrection 
then we are able to share in his life. And as we share in his life, we should seek to live as he lived, which is to serve others and lay aside our own self-interest, not so that we will be saved from the penalty of our sin, but because we are saved by the one who was himself a servant, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what discipleship looks like, imitating Christ and pursuing greatness on his terms. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. 